Welcome to the Teaching and Lectio podcast for the Abbey, a contemplative vineyard church in Columbus, Ohio. You can find previous teachings and our contemplative reading of the scriptures on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on our website at theabbeycolumbus.church. There, you'll also find important announcements, along with the location and time of our all-church gatherings and community groups throughout the city. The Abbey is committed to being a church that helps people notice and nurture the work of God in their own lives, in the lives of others, and in the world around us. Here's this week's message. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, the Jewish people, they took issue with Peter, saying, You went to the uncircumcised men, and you ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me, and when I had fixed my gaze on it, I was observing it, and I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, and the wild beasts, and the crawling creatures, and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time and said, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without any misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house And he reported to us how he had seen the angels standing in the house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, and you and all of your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the very beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them, the Gentiles, the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. The word of the Lord. You guys say thanks be to God. Okay, we're going we're gonna to insert that into our liturgy moving forward. So the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Thanks, guys. I'm going to invite Tori. She's going to be preaching. Uh, guys, welcome Tori with maybe like a brief prayer in your heart. She stepped on something yesterday and her foot is swollen and... Um, So we have a stool for Tori, and I'm going to help her get set up here.
stepped on a broken piece of furniture. Such a weird problem to have. All right, well, it's a privilege to be with you on this fourth Sunday of Advent, which is the church's way of anticipating and marking the weeks that lead up to Christmas. Today we are turning our attentions towards Acts 11, which is not typically thought of as an Advent text. God speaks to Peter in a dream, but there are no angelic visitations, virgin births, or shepherd visits. It's a story of Peter recounting how God met him in his hunger for God, and God's holy and unexpected and transforming speech to him. It's a story of Peter speaking to his community about actions that he has taken that has not only violated the norms of his community, but radically upset their social order. If you are familiar at all with where the New Testament goes from here to Paul's missionary journeys and accounts of a church's apparently trying very hard and making lots of mistakes and figuring out how to structure themselves and how to relate to each other, all that builds on what happens here in Acts 11. It's a transitional moment in which the God of Israel, who spoke to Abram, raised the Israelites from Egypt, sent Jesus, demonstrated the healing power of the kingdom over and over through Jesus's ministry, and ultimately raised him from the dead, invites us into the story. We who are mostly not Jewish descendants of Abraham, we who are in the crowd as Jesus taught, we who have been listening in on Israel's story are welcomed into the forming church. The spirit of God falls on the Gentiles. It's like Pentecost. God is with us all. Let's pray. Welcoming God, we turn our hearts and mind toward you today. We recall how you planned and prepared a way for us to come into your kingdom in your spirit's work. Through this text and in our time together, we pray that you would meet us in our quiet thoughts and racing minds, tired bodies, and hope-filled anticipation. We who come today brimming with joy and we who are barely able to get out of bed. Speak to us through your word. We look to you for help this morning. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, the stage is set here at the beginning of the text. We are told that the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. That is to say, before Peter returned to his community of believers, news of Peter's actions traveled ahead of him. Put in slightly more blunt terms, Peter wasn't controlling the narrative. It was spinning ahead of him, and with him, the emotion was going with it. And that is thoroughly predictable, right? What happens when big news breaks accidentally or from an unofficial source? One person on the inside shares a little bit too much information. Someone in a senior leadership position at a workplace is unexpectedly leaving, and work gets out via some avenue besides the official one. A decision that's going to change a lot of lives goes in the direction that no one expects it to go. More specifically yet, recall what it was like when the Dobbs decision, the recent Supreme Court case that overturned Roe v. Wade, leaked ahead of the court's official announcement. It was a frenzy, 
Actors within our polarized political climate flared their destructive fangs, blinding fear and anticipatory celebration, one that often neglected the fear it trembling in your neighbor's eyes became the public animus. In this kind of setting, there is no structured forum for explaining details or orderly speech, let alone actual listening. Rather, there's an electric current and usually everyone gets stung. This is the room that Peter is walking into. At his return to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him saying, why did you go with the uncircumcised men and eat with them? Why did you, Peter, go and eat with our oppressor? A Gentile belonging to the ruling group, a military man, a government man, you have made yourself unclean. Friends, consider where we are in the church's story. With the Spirit's help, Jesus' group of ragtag followers are figuring out what it means to be followers of Jesus now that he's gone. Their old identities don't fit the way they once did, but they're still working this out. There remains cultural, social, political, interpersonal, and religious separation between Jew and Gentile. Why did you go with the uncircumcised men and eat with them? Is an emotionally charged question that reads like an accusation. To say nothing of the laws that governed how Peter's community ate, which was wholly different than that of the Gentiles, in eating there is vulnerability and connection and relationship. Recall the table that Jesus shared with his followers and outcasts. What does it mean that he went to Zacchaeus' house and ate with him? Jesus broke the bread and shared the cup with his disciples the night before he was crucified. He said to do this in remembrance of me, and it is from that instruction that the church gets its Eucharistic tradition. But where Paul says in 1 Corinthians, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this club, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, I think at least part of what he's talking about is actually sharing meals at our tables like what he was sharing with the disciples. So when the umbas came over for dinner last week and when I shared the table with my friends and my coworkers at a Christmas party, I think we are proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. There is a joining together and a particular kind of peace. Why did you go with the uncircumcised men and eat with them? Why did you ruin yourself? Why did you desecrate the table? Why did you violate something sacred and open it up to them? It is from here that Peter jumps into a story offering an explanation for his behavior that his community has experienced as inexplicable. Though it is a tense moment that Peter needs to turn, I don't think it's fair to call his actions one of de-escalation because the story he tells is shocking. He explains it step by step, petitioning his listeners to follow along. He doesn't invoke the Hebrew scriptures to derive authority. He doesn't make an emotional appeal. He doesn't present a rational argument. These are the rhetorical techniques usually used in moments like these, right? I mean, consider the politician's apology, non-apology in response to scandal, or an institution's stunning ability to gaslight and how it tells its narrative. The heroine of the Christmas rom-com usually makes an emotional appeal to the residents of the town she's betrayed or the owner of the inn she runs or the newspaper column, usually at about like the 80 minute mark. In a more positive light, consider the responsible CEO 
who offers a transparent explanation of the logic that led to hard decisions, or the patient matriarch who has a perfectly reasonable explanation, but knows she needs to hear out the people in the room before she presents it. These are the rhetorical moves for a charged moment, and Peter doesn't take up any of them. Instead, he tells a first-person story. We might call it a testimony. Then Peter began to explain to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a, a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. And I looked at it closely, and I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill, and eat. This vision dramatically sets the stage for the meal sharing that we know follows. God is preparing Peter to share a table with the Gentiles. In response to this vision, Peter says, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the second time, the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. This is a powerful encounter that includes God's own voice. God's own voice giving Peter instruction that shocked him. Lord, nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. So God says it again and again. And then, in that moment, before Peter can step away and rationalize to himself about how he, he must have imagined it, three men come and fetch him. Now, this is an orchestration of epic proportions. Not only did God come to Peter, God gave the message three times, and then as soon as it was done, as soon as everything was pulled up again into heaven, the men came. We know from the other places that this story is recounted in the book of Acts, that God came and spoke to a man named Cornelius and told him to send the men. So God was talking to Peter, and God was talking to Cornelius in such a way that had perfect timing that it literally took into account travel time and made it possible for these two God encounters to line up perfectly. I love this fact, and part of what I love about it is that it is so doggone practical. Like, I believe the, the encounters on themselves with God would have been transformational, but the lining up of external circumstances around these God encounters, which I imagine is fairly dramatic, but largely internal experiences, is earth-shattering and hopeful. Have you ever experienced unexpected, perfectly, seemingly ordained God timing like that before? I kid you not, in um, 2017, I was working at this church, at this job that I had held since college, and I was quitting that job to take another job at another church doing basically the same thing, but I was moving from a primarily white suburban congregation to a multicultural urban congregation, and it was a fantastic move. Now, the only problem with this move is that it was a 40% pay cut. And at this time, I was living on student loans, and I was actually quite literally homeless that summer um, with just, you know, a little bit of change in the bank. To get by that summer, I had hopped from home to home dog-sitting in exchange for a place to live. It was a pretty vulnerable position. And so I was walking up the hill from this church where I had just accepted the job with the 40% pay cut, and I was praying about money and whelmed with this really deep, deep calm in my body. Even as I expressed my fear to God, there was a, a kind of tranquility in the moment. 
So much so that as I was walking up the hill toward the divinity school where I was about to score a free lunch, I turned to this dog that was on a leash by a family using a parking meter. And something that's helpful to know is that I don't actually really like dogs. I don't think they're cute. I don't spend time with them. But I was in this very noticing state. So I looked to this dog. And as soon as I did, he charged at me, grabbed my finger, and pulled me around in a circle. It was a shocking and surprising moment that entirely killed the tranquil vibe. Uh, it took a minute to free myself from the dog and then another to assess the damage, which is to say, despite holding my finger in his mouth and dragging me around on the sidewalk, there actually wasn't any damage at all, except just the tiniest little bit of broken skin. Now, the family that owned this dog was freaking out, like majorly freaking out. And I, I was telling them, I'm okay, I'm okay. I was trying to walk away and they kept insisting that I wait. They pulled out the dog's paperwork. They were giving me their vet's phone number and showing me vaccination records. Um, the, the family uh, was really whelmed with a lot of emotion and struggling to communicate because English wasn't their first language. And so the dad and daughter like, kept switching off and I kept telling them, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I started walking up the hill toward my lunch. And eventually they're, they're chasing me down the sidewalk and I've refused them a dozen times. And so I say, fine, I'm, I'm gonna take whatever it is they're trying to hand me because it, it feels like the culturally appropriate thing to do in this moment. And so I do that. And then I look down and I realize they've handed me $100 cash. Now remember, I was praying about money and as I finished my walk up the hill, I was stuck in this quandary of, oh my gosh, did God just send a dog to bite my finger as a way of saying that God is gonna take care of me? I think the answer is yes. I, I experienced this holy, bizarre encounter as a kind of weird affirmation that God heard my prayers and knew that my need was quite literally physical. And so but God put a crisp $100 in my hand immediately. When Peter was praying, he not only heard the same message from God three times, but as soon as he was done, the men that had showed up to collect him, and he went because of what had just happened. The text continues. The Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. I wonder if the Spirit said something additional to Peter about not making a distinction. But I also wonder, and I am suspicious that this might be the case, that the God-given direction not to make a distinction was Peter putting into words the interpretation he took from the dream he had three times. God said, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And what these words mean is, Peter, make no distinction. Peter, share a table with the Gentiles and eat their food. Peter, the healing, wholeness-bringing work of my kingdom is for them too. And then this is where the drama happens. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had fallen upon us in the beginning, as it had on us. Peter is telling his listeners to remember their own story. Recall when the day of Pentecost came. The day of Pentecost, when suddenly from heaven there was a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. Now the crowd that was present all shared a religious background, but the text says that the people there were from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And so same religion, but different cultures, backgrounds, and languages. And each heard them speaking in their native language. It was an unexpected scene that most folks didn't know how to interpret. Peter preaches at Pentecost, offering a reminder of who God is and explaining what is going on. And as Peter again faces his own religious community, this time after eating with the Gentiles, he offers an explanation again. This time, though, after telling him about their own experiences with God and the repeating vision, he reminds them of their own experience. The Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had on us in the beginning. This is not a casual remembrance. It is sacred and powerful. I would imagine not only because remembering one's own experience of Pentecost is powerful, but God's awesome, majestic power was on display at Pentecost. Regalling that, I don't think Peter's listeners would be I think Peter's listeners would be disinclined toward arguing with him out of holy, reverent fear for God. If the Holy Spirit had indeed fallen on the Gentiles as it had fallen on them at Pentecost, then one dare not step in the way. Peter, as he addresses his community, is reminding them of the gift that they received from God, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here's where his testimony forward explanation makes its interpretive point. If then, if then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? He's saying, dear friends, how could I? I know that we are all different. I know the rules and regulations. I don't eat unclean food, and yet something has changed. Something has changed and is changing everything. The gift that God left us, God's spirit, it isn't just for us. It is for us and our neighbors with whom we do not share customs or cultures. It is for us and our neighbors with whom we fight. It is for us and our neighbors whom we do not always understand. The gospel itself is being transposed in this moment. See, the Holy Spirit has fallen on the Gentiles. The good news of the kingdom of God is reaching them, and look at how it came. It did not come with imperialistic thrust, no bait and switch, no demand for holiness before God would reveal God's self. The Gentiles did not need to change themselves to be like Peter's religious community. They did not need to talk the same way or pray the same way or behave the same way. Rather, God's spirit fell on them through the help of a missionary, Peter, following God's leading, a missionary who, at the Lord's direction, gave up his own practices ones that enraged his own community to humbly enter into the space of another people and culture. The gospel of the kingdom did not belong to Peter's religious community or any of the nations that they were from. This stunning piece of news that God gave the Gentiles the same gift that he had given them silenced the riled up crowd who had heard that Peter ate with Gentiles and waited for him with pitchforks. Record scratch, awkward moment, turn of events because of what follows. 
I can't help but think that the Spirit of God was with them in that space. Because then they praised God, saying, then God has given, even to the Gentiles, the repentance that leads to life. Over and over and over throughout Scripture, despite humanity's shortcoming, God draws near to God's creation. The theologian Robert Jensen puts it this way, the God depicted in the Old Testament does not ride serenely above what is happening in the temporal world. Israel's God lives the history of the world together with us. And in the New Testament, we meet a main character, Jesus, God, born of the Virgin Mary. Come thou long-expected Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Throughout Jesus' ministry, we are again and again introduced to God's dynamic, upside-down, peace-bringing kingdom wherein the dead were raised, the grieving were accompanied, the sick were healed, and the scandalized were embraced. Jesus' death was a mighty act of absolute exposition, solidarity, mediation, and invocation. His place on the cross exposed the violence of humanity because now, no longer chased by death as he was in infancy and during his ministry, he confronted it. He came into it. He died. Experiencing death's wrath and the public spectacle of its preparation, Jesus entered the foulest, most dejected, and violent spaces occupied by humanity, and he did so as an innocent. Through this act of solidarity and as an embodiment of God's love, he entered death's physical space. In his resurrection, Christ stands as mediator, pulling us, always pulling us from death's dark depths into life, which are fully known to him. This is the reality and power of Christ's resurrection. It is neither foolish nor vain to hope. In the places of death, we do not have to pretend that it is not that bad. We do not have to call that which is evil good because we are afraid of offending or alienating ourselves from God's affection. We do not have to see a way out or even be able to imagine what a better day might look like. This is because we have sustainable hope, hope that enters our darkness. It is given through Jesus who testifies to the compelling, urgent, relentless desire on God's part for communion with us. This hope is our confession and our salvation. Acts 11 is not typically thought of as a Christmas story. And yet in it, there's a recalling and a retelling of God's presence and faithfulness and hope. And that's what Christmas is about, God's literal embodied presence as an infant child, born to the Virgin Mary, joyfully proclaimed by the angels in the field to the shepherds, bringing hope. Today's passage invokes Jesus' words about the coming Holy Spirit and remembrance of the table he shared with follower and outcast alike. God meets Peter in his hunger for God, visiting him through a trance. God speaks clearly. God speaks the same thing three times, and then as soon as it is over, the Gentile men that Cornelius had sent showed up. God offers unexpected speech, and he does so compassionately, repeating speech, speech perfectly timed for action. 
and then God comes. God's spirit falls on the Gentiles and it becomes clear in the Christmas story when the angel stood before the shepherds in the field declaring the birth of the Messiah, it was good news of great joy for all people. Indeed, as Peter's newly disarmed religious community proclaimed after hearing Peter's testimony, all may find the repentance that leads to life through Israel's God. This morning and in this last week before Christmas, I invite you to hold on to this promise. I don't know what you need in your life from God. I don't know what pressures you feel, what circumstances or experiences might be weighing on you but we can see some of it. I can look outside, walk down Sullivan Avenue. I can step over the 16 ounce cans of cheap alcohol that lie between my car tires and the curb where my foot's supposed to go when I'm putting my daughter in her car seat and wonder about the beloved person who put it there last night. I can read the paper and lament that once again, public funds are advancing the leisure and whining and dining of affluent suburbanites rather than the hungry mouths of children who have no place to play right here in our own city. And in all of these things, we desperately need saving. And so, for the things that are personal to you and the circumstances we find ourselves surrounded by, I remind us that God has offered to us and our most despised neighbor the repentance that leads to life and the gift of God's spirit. I remind us that God speaks and speaks unexpectedly into real physical circumstances. And in these things, may God meet us this Advent season.